Well, good morning. Good to see all of you here. Uh, This is part six of our essential series. We're preaching our way through our doctrinal statement. We're looking at uh, what every follower of Jesus Christ needs to understand and believe. And today we come to the doctrine of salvation and sanctification. Uh, Here's our doctrinal statement. It says, we believe that salvation is by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ and his shed blood on our behalf. Sanctification is through the work and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And today we're going to take a look at a very familiar passage of Scripture for many of you, but it is richly loaded with truth. And so I I hope you'll dig in here with me today. It's John chapter 3. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Jesus said to Nicodemus in verse 3, he says, Truly, truly, in other words, I really, really mean this. I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And I love that statement because it means that if you're born again, you can see the kingdom of God. Jesus is speaking to all of us. He's not just talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus is not a special case. Jesus is saying, if you'll be born again, you can be saved. You you can be part of God's church, God's family. You'll go to heaven. You'll not go to hell. But he says, in order for you to do that, you must be born again. Do you know you can believe in God and still go to hell? You can believe in God and still go to hell. Sometimes people will say, I believe in God. I've always believed in God. But the devil and the demons believe in God. They know God exists, and they're still going to hell. So if you're basing your salvation on, I believe in God, that's not good enough. Nicodemus was one of the Pharisees, one of the most religious Jewish leaders. If anybody believed in God, it's Nicodemus. If anybody believed in God, it was the Pharisees. Yet Jesus said to them in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. That's a convert. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell. Evidently, believing in God, even getting other people to believe in God, won't keep you out of hell. Jesus says, unless one is born again, 
he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, teaching about the new birth can be unsettling. It may be unsettling to many of you, just like Jesus' words were unsettling to Nicodemus. And there are three reasons why it's unsettling. First is, is because of our hopeless condition. Jesus' teaching about the new birth confronts us with our hopeless state. Before the new birth happens to us, we are spiritually dead. We are morally selfish, and we are legally guilty before God. And it's unsettling to hear that about ourselves. But you've got to keep in mind, Jesus isn't telling us that we're bad. He's telling us that we're dead. He's not questioning our worth. He's just giving us an accurate diagnosis of our spiritual state. Number two, it's unsettling because we cannot cause the new birth. The new birth is something that is done to us. It is not something that we do. John 1.13 refers to the children of God as those who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God is the one who causes the new birth. Peter stresses uh, the same thing. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Circle that phrase, caused us to be born again. We don't cause the new birth. God causes the new birth. And any good that we do is a result of the new birth. It, it, it doesn't cause the new birth. It's out of our hands. It's out of our control. It's got to come from someone outside of us. It's got to come from God. And that can be unsettling. The new birth is unsettling, number three, because the absolute freedom of God confronts us. God is absolutely free to do whatever he wants. The spirit blows wherever it wants to. God is sovereign, we are not. God is free to do whatever he wants to, even with us. His decision to make us alive is not a response to something that we do as spiritual corpses. What we do is in response to the life that he gives us. And that can be unsettling. But my hope today is that this message will stabilize and save, not just unsettle. I'm not trying to preach to just stir you up. I, I, I really am hopeful that God will do what he says he'll do in Ephesians 2. It says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That's my goal. That's my desire today. So what happens in the new birth? Well, first, the new birth is getting a new life, not new religion. Now, there's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's a ruler of the Jews. He's part of the most religiously rigorous group in Israel. And to this Pharisee, Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And in verse 7, he just looks him straight in the eye and says, you must be born again. 
All of Nicodemus' religious effort, all his amazing Pharisaic study and spiritual discipline and law-keeping, it cannot replace the need for the new birth. What Nicodemus needs is not just a new religion, a new way to do religion. He needs what you and I need, and that is a new life. Now, in one sense, Nicodemus is alive. I mean, he's standing there, he's breathing, he's thinking, he's feeling, he's talking to Jesus, but evidently Jesus thinks he's dead. Because Jesus looks at him and says, Nicodemus, there's no spiritual life in you. You need a new birth, not a new religion. Second way of describing the new birth is it's experiencing the supernatural, not just affirming it. And this goes back to this, well, I believe there's a God. There's a difference between affirming the supernatural and experiencing the supernatural. Nicodemus says, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God. No one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. He sees in Jesus genuine divine activity. He admits that Jesus is from God. He acknowledges that Jesus does the works of God. And to this, Jesus doesn't respond, Oh, I wish everybody in Israel would see what you've seen, Nicodemus. I wish everybody would have the clarity of thought and, uh, that you have. No. No. He says, You must be born again, or you will never see the kingdom of God. Being amazed at signs and wonders and giving the miracle worker credit that he's from God saves no one. Saves no one. You don't need a new heart to be amazed at miracles. The old fallen nature is willing to say that God is a miracle worker. The devil recognizes that Jesus is God and works miracles. Seeing Jesus as a miracle worker is not the key to the kingdom. What matters is not merely affirming the supernatural in Jesus, but experiencing the supernatural in yourself. The new birth is supernatural. It's not natural. In verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. The flesh is what we are naturally. The spirit of God brings about a new supernatural birth. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Spirit is sovereign. The Spirit is supernatural. Indeed, the Spirit's God. And He's the immediate cause of the new birth. God, the Holy Spirit, must come upon you and bring new life into existence. And there's a crucial connection between being born again by the Spirit and having eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the life. Jesus is the life. What happens in the new birth is the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit to bring spiritual life into being where there was no spiritual life. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The Spirit gives life, and Jesus is the life that the Spirit gives. The spiritual life that the Spirit gives, He gives us in connection with Jesus Christ. It's in Christ where we experience supernatural spiritual life. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
That's the problem with all these other religions out there. They do not recognize that Jesus Christ is the way to the Father. They may acknowledge a God. They may even acknowledge the God of the Bible. But if they don't recognize Jesus Christ, they have no way, they have no truth, they have no spiritual life. Because no one comes to the Father except through me. There is no life apart from Jesus Christ. No spiritual life, no eternal life apart from Christ. And spiritual life and faith in Jesus come into being together. The new birth makes faith in Christ possible, and uh, there's no new birth without faith in Christ. Look how John describes it in 1 John 5. He says, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's the Spirit who gives life. Flesh is no help. And so the Holy Spirit supernaturally gives us new spiritual life by connecting us with Jesus Christ through faith. Third, the new birth is a new creation, not just improving the old. Uh, The new birth is not uh, the improvement of your old human nature. It's the creation of a new human nature through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in your life. Jesus says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now some believe that this reference to water and Spirit is a reference to baptism. That the way the Spirit unifies us with Christ is through baptism. If we want to be saved, we must be baptized. But the Bible teaches that you're saved first by your faith alone in Jesus Christ. And then you're baptized because you are saved. You're not baptized in order to be saved. In fact, this water here, let me tell you why water here is not a reference to, to baptism at all. Three reasons. First, there's no mention of baptism in the rest of the chapter. If baptism were essential for the new birth, it seems strange that Jesus doesn't mention it anywhere in this chapter. The chapter where he tells you how to receive eternal life. All he makes is a passing reference to water. But verse 15, he says, Whoever believes in him, the him is Jesus. Whoever believes in Christ may have eternal life. Verse 16, whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. It is believing in Christ that gives you eternal life. Notice, it's not just a generic belief in God that saves you. It's a specific belief in Jesus Christ that he is who he said he is, that he did what he said he would do, that he lived, he died, he was buried, he was resurrected, and he's coming again. That belief is what brings about the new birth. That's what gets you the gift of eternal life. If baptism were essential to the new birth, wouldn't it be mentioned along with faith? But he doesn't mention baptism, just a specific belief in him as Savior. Second reason why baptism doesn't fit here is it doesn't fit with Jesus' scolding of Nicodemus. 
If Jesus is referring to baptism, it seems strange that he'd say to Nicodemus in verse 10, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Now that makes sense if Jesus is referring to something that was taught in the Old Testament, something that Nicodemus would have studied and in fact was a scholar on. But baptism is something new. It's something that that gets its meaning from the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And those events haven't even happened yet. So it doesn't seem like Jesus would scold Nicodemus for not understanding something that, that hasn't even occurred. Number three, water and spirit are linked in new covenant promises. Uh, Jesus, on on the night before he was uh, killed, uh, instituted the Lord's Supper. And in that conversation, he talks about this is the new covenant. There was a promise in the Old Testament that Nicodemus would have known about of a new covenant that would come. And Jesus Christ is saying, I'm it. What he's saying to Nicodemus is, don't you get, I'm the part of the new covenant. And in that new covenant, water and spirit are connected. We'll we'll look at Ezekiel 36. Uh, Ezekiel's prophesying what God will do for his people when he brings them back from exile in Babylon. And the implications of this prophecy are much larger than just the nation of Israel and what happens at that time. Jesus demonstrates that when he institutes the new covenant through his blood Uh, in Luke 22, when he gives us the ordinance of communion. We're going to talk about baptism and communion again in this series. But the new covenant isn't just for Israel. The new covenant is for us today. And so this passage in Ezekiel 36, let's look at this. He says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall not dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall, sorry, you shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers. And you shall be my people, and I will be your God. You will be my people, I will be your God. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. And so the ones who are going to enter that kingdom are those who have a newness, a newness that involves a cleansing of the old with water, and a creation of the new by the Spirit. So water and Spirit refer to the two aspects of our newness when we're born again. Being born again doesn't mean that I cease to be the person that I've always been. I was Kelly Walter before I was born again. I'm Kelly Walter after I'm born again. There's a continuity of personality, of personhood. And that's why there has to be a cleansing of the old. If the old Kelly Walter were just obliterated, then then the talk of forgiveness and cleansing would be irrelevant. There'd, There'd be nothing left over from the past to forgive. 
But the new birth doesn't mean that the same human being is not in existence. It means that there's an old nature, that there are old habits, there's an old character that needs to be forgiven, needs to be cleansed. The, the person that we continue to be must be forgiven. Our guilt must be washed away. But forgiving and cleansing the old is, is not enough. I need to be new. I need to be new. I need a new way of seeing, of thinking, of acting. That's why Ezekiel speaks of a new heart and a new spirit. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. The heart of stone is that old, cold, dead heart that we have. It's unfeeling, unresponsive to spiritual things. That heart has to change if we're going to see the kingdom of God. And so God takes out that heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh in the new birth. We get a new heart, a soft, living, responsive heart that is spiritually sensitive to Jesus Christ. A new spirit I will put within you. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. It's that new spirit that gives us the ability to walk in the statutes, to walk in the will of God, to obey God. So in the new birth, the Holy Spirit supernaturally cleanses the old part of us and gives us a new heart and a new spirit by connecting us with Jesus Christ. Spirit unites us to Christ. There's cleansing for our sins. There's, there, there's a, uh, our hard, unresponsive heart is replaced with a soft heart that treasures Jesus Christ above all things. And the way all of that happens is through faith in Jesus Christ. You believe in him. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. And so I want to invite you. I want to invite you right now in the name of Jesus and the power of the Spirit to receive Christ, to receive the new life that he offers us, to receive the, the, the sin-forgiving, transforming power that Christ offers into your life. In fact, I want to just pause right here, right now, and just give you an opportunity to just respond to that, to pray and to tell Christ that you believe in him to give the, opportun- the Spirit the opportunity to grant you that new life. Let's pray. Just in the quietness of your own, own heart and mind, would you say, God, I, I believe that you love me and you made me for your purposes. I'm sorry that I've lived for myself instead of for you, and I ask you to forgive my sins. I thank you for sending Jesus Christ to pay for my sin on the cross. And today I recognize Jesus as the Lord and Savior of my life. God, please come into my life. Forgive me, wash me, cleanse me of my sins. God, give me a new, soft heart for you. God, help me to live every day in the power and presence of Jesus Christ. Help me to walk in your statutes and obey your will. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Salvation is absolutely critical for every person. But salvation is not the goal of the Christian life. Salvation is the start of the Christian life. 
Sanctification is the goal of the Christian life. Just like in your physical life, the goal is not simply to be born. The goal is to grow up. The goal is to live a long, full, productive life. It's tragic if a person is born but never matures. It's tragic if a person is born but their life is shortened or if their life is wasted. It's tragic because the goal isn't just to be born. The goal isn't just to exist. The goal is to become become all that God wants you to be. Same's true in your spiritual life. The goal isn't just to get saved so you go to heaven when you die. The goal is to grow up in Christ. The goal is to become all God wants you to be and to live a long, full, productive spiritual life. That's the process of sanctification. So let's talk about that. Five steps towards sanctification. How, how do we do it? How does it happen? Number one, first, we acknowledge. We acknowledge from our hearts that we're helpless to do good. Apart from the empowerment of spirit, we're, we're, we're hopeless. Paul says in Romans seven eighteen, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. Jesus said in John 15, 5, without me you can do nothing Apart from Jesus Christ, the only thing we can do is sin. So the first step towards sanctification is we admit we can't do anything. We can't do anything pleasing to God without the constant enablement of the Spirit. Second thing we do is we pray. Because God has promised to put His Spirit within us. God has promised to cause us to walk in his statutes. And so we just pray that God will fulfill his promise to us through his almighty power. And many of you know the glorious, liberating experience of having an incredible desire for sin overcome by a new, stronger desire for God and his way. Many of you have experienced breakthroughs where where those old habits, those old urges, even addictions are, are broken by the power of God in your life. And as you look back, who deserves the credit for that? Where did it come from? It came from the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, the sanctifying power. And that, that, thank God we can pray. We can pray this prayer in Hebrews 13. It says, and now may the God of peace equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in you that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. God, God, equip me. God, work in me. Help me to do what's pleasing. Thank God we can pray, create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. You stop trying to do it yourself, and you start trusting in God to do it for you and through you and in you. That's the third step involved in sanctification, is trust. We believe that we're empowered by God's Spirit. And when we do that, Paul says, sin will no longer have dominion over us. Faith breaks the power and dominion of sin over us. That's what he meant when he said, reckoning ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. The Spirit who made us alive when we were dead in sin, that same Spirit has the power to make us dead to sin when we've been reborn. 
And so one of the things that we can pray as believers, we can pray absolutely assured that God is going to answer that prayer, is we can pray for our sanctification. We know that God desires that his children be led by the Spirit. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And so if you're a child of God, you have a solid and unshakable promise from God that he will give you victory over the powerful desires of the flesh. Now the one caution I would give you is do not presume upon the timing of the Holy Spirit's work. The Holy Spirit moves sovereignly however he wants to. And it's been amazing to me, as a believer of 40-some years, how, how this sanctification thing works. How one person can pray one time and get a breakthrough in some area of their sin, and how another person will struggle for weeks or months or years to, to overcome the same thing. It's a mystery, honestly, that I do not understand. But it's our job to trust the Holy Spirit, not time Him. Okay? We just pray and we trust Him to work. Fourth step in sanctification is we act. Notice it's the fourth step, it's not the first step. If you act as the first step, that's an act of the flesh, not a fruit of the Spirit. And that's a lot of the problem that many of us have because it's only after we've acknowledged our helplessness, only after we've prayed for the Spirit's enablement, only after we've trusted in His promise and prayer, then we can work with all our might. When we act with that, with that spiritual preparation, then we can say what Paul said, by the grace of God I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God which is with me. A person who's recognized their helplessness, a person who has prayed for God's enablement to do right, a person who's yielded themselves confidently to the sovereignty and power of the Holy Spirit can boldly say, it's not me that's doing this. I'm not the one that's made this happen. It's by God's grace I am what I am. That's the tension that we see in Philippians 2. It says, beloved, work out your own salvation. It says work out, not work for, because it's a gift. You work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, because God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Peter tells us, let him who serves, serve in the strength which God supplies, that in everything God may get the glory. And that leads to the fifth step of sanctification. And that's where you thank. We thank God for any victory that we've experienced. We thank God for any good thing that we've been able to do. If without the Spirit we can't do anything right, then we must not only ask for His enablement, but we've got to thank Him when we get it. I love an example of this out of 2 Corinthians 8. The, the, the Apostle Paul loved the Corinthian church. He loved the believers in, in Corinth. And Paul loved the church so much that he sent one of his young uh, uh, emissaries, a young associate of his, Titus, he sent him to go minister to the Corinthian church. And, and, and Paul says this, he says, Thanks be to God who puts the same earnest care for you into the heart of Titus. Paul said, I love, I love you, 
Corinthians. I love the Corinthians church. And thank God that Titus is coming to you and God has given him the same love. Well, where'd that love come from? It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's a fruit of the Spirit. So what does Paul do? He thanks God for it. And Titus should thank God for it too. And the Corinthians should thank God for it too. Thanks be to God who who puts that fruit of love in our hearts. We thank God for the growth and the maturity that he brings to us. Salvation is essential. When we acknowledge from our heart that we're unable to save ourselves, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ to save us, God promises that he'll save us. Sanctification is essential. When we acknowledge from our heart that we're unable to sanctify ourselves, when we put our trust in the Spirit of God to sanctify us, God promises that he'll do it. Let's lean in to those promises. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for your love and your mercy and grace that you've poured out upon us. God, you have seen us broken and hard-hearted, destitute in our sin, dead in our sin. And yet in your great love for us, you sent your son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus came and he paid the penalty for our sin. He died, he was buried, he rose again. And now he offers to us a new, abundant, eternal life. God, what a tremendous gift you've given to us. It's my desire, God, it's my earnest prayer today that every person here will have received that gift of eternal life by believing in Jesus Christ. And God, believing in Christ and being born again, it's not all you have for us. You have so much more. Your desire is that we would grow up, that we would mature, that we would, we would bear fruit, that we would, would produce a harvest, a harvest of souls for you, a harvest of rewards for ourselves through the power of the Spirit in our lives. God, I pray you'd help each of us to lean into that new birth, to lean into that new way of life that comes from walking in the Spirit. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.